Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Maybe we need to change that. Maybe it's just Mind Escape. Maurice hasn't been here for a while. He's will come back, obviously, but welcome back to Mike's Mind Escape temporarily. Uh, <laughs> we have a special episode today. Lately, we've been doing a lot of our episodes at night, but uh, for this one, we got to make an exception. We have Laird Scranton back on the show. Um, if you don't know who Laird is, uh laird is a author who's written a ton of books i have the link down below to uh, all of his amazon books he's also um written two new ones which we're going to discuss um basically having to do with symbolism and uh the origin stories um and those two are ama and the spark of the universe and the waters of life he does have a new one in the works, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about, called Third Eye. Um, he's also featured uh, in our documentary, As Within, So Without, from UFOs to DMT. And you've probably seen him on other stuff as well. Uh, so, yeah, this is going to be an awesome episode. Before we get started, um, if you want to support Mind Escape, the easiest way to do it is to click the link tree link down below. As I mentioned, we do have a... Um, documentary that we made called as within so without from ufos to dmt it is free on youtube there is a extended director's cut available on our patreon uh for 777 and actually if you get that you do get exclusive content and we've done a number of segments with laird that is available on our patreon from the past and i do have a um set list or a playlist down below of all of our episodes that we've done with laird which is probably about six or seven now um over the years yeah uh actually and i i really enjoy i went back i don't know maybe a couple years ago and watched our first episode together um and we were smoking on that one we got william budge and you know john anthony west stuff and that was a good episode the first one so yeah if you're interested go back and take a listener or watch to that uh we do have a merch store uh the easiest way to support mind escape though if you're listening on an audio platform, please check out our YouTube channel and subscribe. We do all of our episodes live. If you're watching live right now on YouTube, please check out our audio platform stuff and leave us a nice review. We do have videos on Spotify uh, as well. So without further ado, welcome back on the show, Laird. How are you doing? Thank you very much for inviting me on. I've been looking forward to this all week. <laughs> well, that's awesome to hear. Um, <clears throat> so... You know, early when, like I mentioned, the some of the first episodes we had on, we, we focused on like the Dogon and the comparative stuff between other cultures, whether it be Egypt or whatever, just like crossover within the symbolism and metaphysics and stuff like that. Uh, lately, you've been focusing on um, kind of like primordial energy or, you know, 
creation myths, that kind of stuff. Why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of your more recent focus and stuff like that? Okay, my, my entry point into these studies, my, what I do is I do comparative studies of cosmology that I realized early on that all of the classic um, religions um, preserve elements of a common set of instruction. It's uh, Buddhism and the Dogen culture and other cultures claim that in ancient times, um, a group of informed teachers uh, provided global instruction to various tribal groups on concepts of creation, concepts of cosmology. Cosmology is the, um, the way in which a culture explains to itself how, how creation came about. Uh, when the Dogen are talking about creation, they're talking about four different things. They're talking about how matter forms, how the universe forms, how biological life forms and how consciousness comes about. So the Dogen turned out to be an excellent entry point into this kind of a study because their culture, uh, first of all, their culture is a kind of an umbrella over a number of classic ancient cultures. And the second thing is that they have a societal imperative to, to preserve original forms. And so my studies, basically what I do is I take a, an explicit claim on the part of one of the ancient societies, and then I test that against how the other ancient cultures understood the same symbolic element. And what the Dogen say is that their, cause, their symbolic cosmology describes how matter forms. And um, so I could see immediately back in the 1990s that their description of an atom was scientifically correct, and their description of the components of an atom, which are protons and electrons, was also scientifically correct. And so I asked myself, what are the possibilities that the whole descending structure that they described could be scientifically correct? And so I spent the last 30 years basically trying to test that and trying to demonstrate it. So, so just real quick, a, a skeptical person might be like, whoa, whoa, how would they know such a thing? Um, I would point out, um, this is just my own thoughts on it, but I would point out that we're living in a world right now where we don't understand the underpinnings or the mechanisms. So philosophers, neuroscientists, astronomers, everybody's trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, right. And you have kind of this battle right now, which is like um, idealism or the idea that consciousness is first versus the idea of materialism or illusionism, which is consciousness is just a byproduct of biological function. I would point out, I lean on I, the idealistic uh, end of that. And I would point out if, if mind is first or comes first, then you don't need all the other stuff um, to kind of come to some of these um, conclusions. You know, in my opinion, uh, you can, you know, there's other ways around that. So, I don't know if you have a thought on that. Well, the perspective that's actually represented and the, the recent books, Ama and the Spark of the Universe, The Waters of Life, and the new book I'm working on called The Third Eye. By the way, your your icon is right on point. It it, it centers on the things that I'm talking about, the, the concept of the two eyes and the concept of the third eye. All, all um, are right on point. The outlook is that... A single 
cluster of dynamics of energy are responsible for, for the four um, creational themes. The, the formation of life, the formation of consciousness, the formation of matter, the formation of the universe. And the outlook compares to um, how yeast produces bread. You know, the dough rises because the yeast grows. It's not a fair question to ask which came first, the growth of the yeast or the, or the growth of the bread, because they happen simultaneously. They're, they're intertwined um, concepts. The outlook in the traditions I study is that consciousness is a byproduct of the energies, but the energies are manifested forms, that prior to the energies, all that exists, exists is a state uh, Rene Guénon calls Omkara, Hinduism, defines it. It's a trifold state. It compares energetically to um, the state that Hawking energy produces when it evaporates from a black hole. And the manifestation of magnetism and electricity then has the potential to create consciousness in the way this outlook works. And so it works sort of like a, um, a weed. You know that a weed, if you drop a seed for a weed in any environment that is conducive to its growing, it's going to grow. And that's the way consciousnesses seem to work. But because the same energetics that produce matter produce consciousness, Hinduism and groups like that interpret matter, everything, all the creational aspects to happen within consciousness. But consciousness is not treated as primordial, it's treated as manifested. So it's difficult for some people to get their 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 arms around that idea that that consciousness is a byproduct of a, of manifested energy, not not the primordial thing that exists. That the perspective I have is that you don't have time until you have those energies, and the formation of a conscious thought isn't possible outside of the context of time or something remarkably like time. So. That's a perspective I'm working from. Now, from the Dogen perspective, the Dogen system, you know, my entry entry to it is from the top down, talking about the atom, the electron, and, and tracing things downward. But in fact, if you were talking about it properly, you'd start at the bottom and work up. And the way it works from the bottom up is there's a cycle of energy that is exactly parallel to the way water works. Actually, the Dogen, the Dogen flatly say that uh, Marcel Griol, who was the French anthropologist, uh, published a diary of his his initiation into the Dogen tradition. And he called it God of Water. This is absolutely about water. If you talk, look at science, everything science says about electromagnetism, magnetism, electricity is expressed in terms of water, about the flow of electricity. Um, they, they're using water terms frequently, uh, repeatedly, again and again and again to describe what happens with energy. The Dogen are saying, this isn't just a metaphor, this is the objective truth. And the way it works is, if okay, the, the natural water cycle is the cycle that promotes life on Earth. It's It begins with bodies of water that water evaporates from to create clouds, and the clouds rise up over the mountains and cool down and create, uh, they end up condensing raindrops that fall on the land that then flow back to the sea. Without that cycle of water, you would have no life on the earth. The Dogen are saying without the cycle of energy, you'd have no life in the universe. 
and they're saying it's exactly parallel, that science says that Hawking energy evaporates from black holes. They're saying that that produces what are called instanton knots, which are the equivalent of, of Hinduism's trifold omkara state, that you have the potential in those instanton knots to produce three monopoles of energy. And so when those condense in the materializing aspect of this phase, you produce two monopoles that become a magnet and one monopole that becomes electricity. And those three monopoles together are the equivalent of a, a proton-electron pair. A proton is just a tiny magnet and electron is a, an electrical monopole. So you begin with the, the, the black holes, you evaporate the energy into instanton knots, you condense the energy from the instanton knots, just like raindrops are condensed from clouds, even the, the Egyptians represent it with exactly the same shape that the that science represents the formation of a of a droplet of water. It's a the shape of a hemisphere. Those droplets of water then get distributed out into the material domain, and eventually that comes back around to reproduce the black holes that produce the instanton knots. There's a cycle here. From the, a materializing standpoint, what happens is we're starting with a domain of superconductivity. Superconductivity is a situation where magnetism is dormant and electricity is unresisted. We have two energies here and we have a cycle of energy that moves from one of them being dormant and the other one being unresisted to the other one being dormant and the first one being unresisted. So we move from a state of superconductivity to a state of what's called superinsulation. Now, in the superconductive state, any, okay, you have a perpetual cycle of electricity that is moving ultra fast and any disruption to that circuit creates a spark and the spark evokes the two monopoles of magnetism and you produce what's the equivalent of a, a proton electron pair. You have three monopoles that are linked together and that then because of the input of energy rotate in relation to the, the domain that it is condensed into. The domain is one where all the tiny magnets are aligned the same way and so they pull together. This is called parallel magnetism. They have a have a parallel magnetism draws together and so the energetic domain is unity because it draws itself together. But these these this proton electron um, pair that manifests when it rotates it sets itself anti-parallel to the rest of the domain and so anti-parallel magnetism pushes doesn't pull and so as these pairs manifest you're self-differentiating a second domain that becomes the material domain and that's that second domain ends up creating energy ends up spinning and creating little spirals of energy that be that are so dense in the material domain that eventually what happens is they crowd themselves out. There's no longer room for the little spirals to, to spiral. And so they straighten themselves out and they produce a domain that is now super insulating. It's the reverse of the first one. What you're doing, essentially doing is like a Mahjong game where all the tiles start face down. And during the course of the game, you're flipping the tiles over face up. Well, that's what's happening with magnetism. All the magnetism starts face down 
And then as you materialize it one by one, they turn over and they become face up. And now you have a domain that's the opposite of supermagnetism and superconductivity. So that's what the Dogen are describing. And it, it, they describe it symbolically. Um, the Dogen cosmology is a match for the ancient Egyptian cosmology, and it's a very close match for the ancient Buddhist cosmology. And there are lots of parallels to Hinduism and groups like that. The system begins with a philosophy in India called Samkhya. Samkhya is a, um, a counterpart to yoga. Yoga is sort of the personalized version of the cosmological philosophy of Samkhya, and they both use the same terminology to mean exactly the same things or to mean parallel things. And so what happens with energy in a person is understand, understood to be parallel to what happens to energy in the universe. So the cycle of energy that moves from superconductivity to superinsulation creates an almond-shaped figure. It's called a beat frequency. And that almond-shaped figure um, is at the very heart of all the ancient Egyptian um, cosmological references. Um, Osiris, the name of Osiris is written with two glyphs that read the seat of the almond-shaped almond beat frequency. Um, Isis, the name of Isis is defined in terms of bringing uh, or or how can I say this? Promoting that big frequency without Osiris. Os uh, Iris was, Os Isis and Nephthys, her sister, in one of the ancient Egyptian myths, were responsible for reviving Osiris. And this is a cycle of energy that that peters out and then reinvigorates itself. You can see it best in expressed in a hydrogen atom. Um, now we're at the stage in the Dogen references. Okay, early early on when we were talking about atoms and electrons, a person like me who was basically had science education through the sixth grade was perfectly capable of recognizing that as being science. They have it exactly right, and the Dogen provide diagrams to support the concept of, of electrons and protons that look just like an um, electron orbital of the hydrogen atom. So you, could, you could take the Dogen descriptions and the Dogen drawings and substitute them for uh, paragraphs and diagrams in Stephen Hawking's book, The Brief History of Time, and he wouldn't change his book substantially. The Dogen and the Buddhists have this information exactly right. So when you get to the, this proton-electron pair is an, un, scientifically is an unstable combination that it can only survive a short amount of time. And what happens is that the electron ends up getting forced out of the, the proton-electron pair and ends up orbiting the proton and they can create a hydrogen atom. Well, all of that energetics, there was a 1927 paper written by a French anthrop uh, a physicist named Louis de Broglie, where he noted that he had done calculations and realized that you, you realize that an electron that orbits a proton and a hydrogen atom can take different orbital levels. It's constantly changing orbital levels from very close to the proton to, to very distant from the proton. And those, those stable orbits coincide mathematically with what are called the resonance points of the energy. Resonance is this idea, the idea that if you have a wave of energy that 
is happening at a certain frequency, that every frequency of energy that's an even factor of that original frequency is resonant with it. All of these orbitals of the hydrogen atom are points of resonance. They're the place where resistance disappears and they're the place where um, light can escape from a hydrogen atom. And so consequently what happens is when we, looking from our perspective, try to observe an electron in the hydrogen atom, the only view, even though the electron is constantly shifting from orbit to orbit, the only view we ever get of the electron is one of the in one of the stable orbits. That's a huge piece of Heisenberg uncertainty. That anytime we try to look at a particle, the energetics are forcing our view of the particle to see it at the point of resonance, whether it whether our observation causes it to actually shift or whether because light escapes at that point, we're getting a misstated view of where the particle is. Yeah, no, uh, Sean Carroll, when he describes it, it's almost like this cloud of uncertainty um, as opposed to like what you said, like we learned almost like some looks like a model of the solar system. He's saying it's more of like a cloud of uncertainty, kind of what you're saying. Right, except that the uncertainty part is what's up for grabs. I, Einstein and de Broglie and Schrodinger, okay, De Broglie's paper back in 1927 formed the foundation of Schrodinger's quantum theory. And inexplicably, De Broglie's original paper got disappeared for a century. It was never even translated into English. It looks to me as if Einstein and De Broglie and Schrodinger and Bohr agreed to disappear this paper because it's the 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 smoking gun that links quantum world to relativity. From de Broglie and Einstein's point of view, this is entirely causal. It's not not probabilistic. And the way it's causal is, I can give you an example. When you drive in your car, if you roll down one window, you hear a wonka, 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 wonka sound. That wonka, wonka, wonka sound is called beat frequencies. It's the same function that causes the musical notes that we recognized on a musical scale. There are all sorts of sweet frequencies between the musical notes, but the ones that are coherent to us are the musical, the, the seven notes of the musical scale. Well, energy works exactly the same way, that anytime you have two frequencies of energy that are in phase with each other, which is what electromagnetism is, that magnetism and electri electricity in phase with each other, it creates those beat frequencies. And those beat frequencies is self-differentiation into photons. And that's why energy, we perceive energy as, having, as being dualistic. It has a wave-like aspect and it has a particle-like aspect because the waves automatically evoke these little almond-shaped um, segments that self-differentiate the electricity. The orbitals in the hydrogen atom sit at the points where those the, the equivalent of those photons are defined. The, the resonance point is a resting place for energy. And the Egyptian hieroglyphic language defines this very specifically as, as the place where light is emitted. And so we're able to get a view of it. In Hinduism, those beat frequencies are represented as the literally the lights of the quantum world, the, the lights of, of, of um, the domain we can't directly perceive. Uh, this is have you ever ran the, these ideas past like a uh, 
physicist or like you ever bouncing these ideas I, off of? I don't need to because Louis de Broglie wrote all about it. No, I know you don't need to. I was just curious if you like ever talk about this with people that. Yeah, no, I've, I've spoken. Okay, in in 2017, a, a Quebecan physicist named Andre Michaud was the one who brought to the public's attention that this paper in 1927 had existed and got disappeared. I've had email contact with him to talk about this stuff, so he's sort of the man in this case. But there's a whole set of these. 1920s 30s era physicists who personally witnessed all the progression in the theories of physics and some of them were very capable of expressing those ideas in layman's terms and so they took it upon themselves to write books which i've been avidly reading over the past couple of years that explain in layman's term why it is that this discovery knocked that discovery out of the water and why this discovery was originally endorsed but but now it shouldn't be indoors, that sort of thing. So you've ended up with a situation where even though de Broglie, or even though Schrodinger's quantum theory rests foundationally on the perspectives of de Broglie, there's a camp of physicists, the major camp of modern physicists, endorse the idea that because we can't measure certain things, that there's no causality below a certain point, which is really a stupid idea. The, uh, this is a continuum of energy. If it's causal now, a sensible person realizes that it must have been causal then. De Broglie and Einstein and Schrodinger in private said, look, this is all ultimately causal. We just need to figure out how it's causal. It's not probabilistic. The problem, the problem, the, um, the statistical view of this, the probabilistic view of it is because we're blocked from directly measuring the velocity velocity of a particle at the same time we measure its position. And so it's very, very narcissistic that if we can't measure it, that science says, well, therefore, there must not be the ability to measure it. That's not the true, true at all. De Broglie said, look, at that in no way imposes anything on what's actually happening in the quantum world. The quantum world, it could be completely causal. and and it's simply a matter of below a certain level, our active observation ends up disturbing the particle we're trying to observe, and so we can't get a good read on it. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, I've never heard of that. I got to go back and look into this paper now. It's that's super fascinating. Uh, I know yeah. that he was working. Uh, Andre Michaud's paper on hydrogen resonance. Okay. Resonance yeah, I, I know Einstein was working on the quantum stuff towards the end but maybe that's why maybe um he felt like whatever he was reading you know didn't re no no pun intended didn't resonate with him or, or whatever but it, it looks to me as if the concept of resonance is what ties things that happen in the quantum domain to relativity and de Broglie was very careful to frame everything that he he wrote in terms of um to be compatible with relativity. Uh, de Broglie actually wrote wrote a book about Einstein after Einstein died. Um, so I want to ask you a couple questions. So when you look at like this stuff, the origin stories and stuff, most people would think, uh, you know, from like a psychological standpoint, they have this idea that we're so much superior. We have computers, we have technology, how right. how is it possible that these ancient people 
could have this knowledge of these realms that we only know through you know theoretical mathematics and framework that they supposedly didn't have back then to instruments to measure these things you know like what would you say their claim okay all of my interpretations begin with a, a flat claim on the part of one of the ancient cultures that if an idea originates with me it's not legitimate that when you ask the question, okay, who was the first person who said this? It had better be one of the ancient cultures. My job is to test what they say. The Dogon and the Buddhists are in agreement that what happened in ancient times is that a group of teachers who thoroughly understood the science, this is not theory, this is how it works, pre presented this information globally. And this is what produced uh, Jung's archetypes that exist globally. Oh, Jung could figure out why is it that the cultures that are very widespread around the world all have the same references. It's because whoever presented this stuff, okay, any anyone who could talk about intelligently about these concepts of physics, they don't have a problem moving around the planet. And so the outlook is that there was global instruction in ancient times and that the instruction was about this stuff. We can we, we can identify what cultures were instructed because there are signatures to this tradition. Any culture that measures with cubits had to have been part of this instruction. Any culture that imagines a wheel or a chariot associated with the constellation of Orion has to have been part of this instruction. And there are any number of signatures like that, that the minute you hear that a culture represented that, you know that they had to have been influenced by the same instructional tradition. And they all preserve different elements, aspects of it. And my job is to pick up on what looks like a loose end in one culture and then trace it in another culture that, that focused on it, that centralized on that concept. Yeah, now, I, no. made, right. I made it because prior to 500 BC, ancient language, okay, all every reference in this tradition that is original to the tradition includes an aspect of self-confirmation of meaning i'll try to give an example of what that how, what that means there um buddhism preserves uh, an aligned ritual shrine called a stupa and the dogen have a very similar shrine but it's a more archaic form called a granary in the dogen version of the shrine you have a circular base that measures 64 cubits in circumference that rises to a square flat roof that measures 64 cubits square. There's self-confirmation of meaning in all of the original references. Language works that way. In the Dogen language, which the Dogen had never opted to adopt a written language, they only have a spoken language. But the way the Dogen language works is that it's based on syllables that work like symbols, that every syllable is associated with a root concept. And when they want to construct a, a more complicated concept, they combine the right syllables to, to create it. So I know, a person like me knows, when I hear a spoken Dogen word, I can infer from the phonetics of the word what the original concept was they were trying to represent. I don't have to guess. With Egyptian hieroglyphs, it's the same way. Every glyph represents a concept and who the, the job for the scribe was if he wanted to convey an idea he was trying to to select out of a, a body of 4000 glyphs the right glyphs to produce the, the correct phonetic value of the spoken word but 
where the glyphs, if you substitute concepts for the glyphs, produce a symbolic sentence that explains to you the original intention of meaning of the word. I don't have to guess what the word means. I can. Uh, there are also certain ancient Egyptian words that um, are there to define meanings and assign them to specific glyphs. So I don't even have to guess about what the glyphs mean. Um, we have direct eye-to-eye comparability between ancient Egyptian words and ancient Chinese hieroglyphic words. There's a, a word for week in the Egyptian hieroglyphic language that was written with two glyphs, a very simple word. It's written with the sun glyph, which is a circle with a dot, and an upside down U, which is the Egyptian number 10. The sun glyph can represent the concept of a day. So I looked at that word and I said, symbolically, this says to me 10 days. And I went down back and I did some study and I discovered the ancient Egyptians had a 10 day week. Here, the very form of the word informed me of that. With no other knowledge of Egyptian culture, I could have guessed that they had a 10-day week. You go to ancient China, and their word for week was originally formulated exactly the same way, and they also observed a 10-day week. Every ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic word works that way. We don't have to guess what they mean. The word explains its own meaning to us. So because of this self-confirmation of meaning, a person like me can identify immediately which references are, must be original to the tradition because every original reference is going to have that kind of self-confirmation in one form or another. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, you know, I find your work interesting because I think a lot of people would consider you fringe or whatever, um, but you don't ever get attacked by a lot of the people that attack the other fringe people. Um, what do you think's going on out there right now? Cause there's a lot of rhetoric, um, that I'm not really fond of within the fringe community. Um, more specifically, super popular people that have Netflix specials at every second question mainstream science, where I've always questioned mainstream science. I'm all about the philosophy of science. However, we do need science and that's how we're, we're here, uh, in some regard today. So, um, what do you think about that? This idea that like, so, you know, you, you were a protege or friends with John Anthony West and he would call him quackademics, but he was also friends with a lot of them too. So it was more of like an endearing difference kind of a thing. Now you have like real vitriol. Like, so like what, what's going on here? How do we fix this? Well, know. okay. The community of researchers I'm involved with, the alternative community of researchers, um, run the spectrum from the very fringe to the very academic. Uh, when I was writing my book on Emmanuel Velikovsky, I was being fed answers sort of under the table by uh, Jeff Marcy, who was the head of Berkeley Search for Earth-like planets. Um, when I was writing my first book, I was looking for an astronomer who knew about um, African uh, astronomy, and I was put on to the correct person by Vera Rubin, who discovered dark matter. This is, we, 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 we have, um, a whole spectrum of people um, who speak at the conferences like the CPAC conferences and so forth who run that gamut from very fringe to very academic. Um, in the ancient perspective, it all comes down to science. And once you understand that it all comes down to science, then there's no longer a tension between the, the fringe people and the scientific people. But people will ask me, well, you know, what do the mainstream scientists think of the things you write about? And I say, well, first of all, the alternative researchers are making progress on their own. We don't necessarily need approval from um, academic scientists to, to um, pursue that. 
for instance, the Dogen references implied that there is a, um, a concept of energetic dimensionality. I'll try to explain what this is. When Einstein says that materiality is based on four dimensions, three of those are linear dimensions. It goes from um, two points that define a, a line to four points that define an area to a set of points that define a volume. But he attaches to that a dimension of time, which has, has no physicality to it at all. It's an energetic dimension. Well, so Einstein effectively introduces us to the concept of energetic dimensionality. On the non-material side of this, this scale, we're moving from Hinduism's state of Omkara, the instanton knots that are represented by three monopoles, to magnetism that's represented by two monopoles, to electricity that's represented by one monopole. We have descending geometry, but we also have descending dimensionality. We know that because magnetism and electricity express themselves perpendicularly to each other, and that's a function of dimensionality. So there's a dimensional difference between magnetism and electricity at the bottom of the system. So in the Dogen and the Hindu system, the Hinduism has a figure called the Vajra. The Dogen have a symbol called the Kanaga. And these are representing how three levels of energetic dimensionality meet at a point with three levels of, of physical dimensionality, linear dimensionality. And the, that point where they meet is the concept of the geometric point, which from, from the standpoint of our scientists has no dimensionality but from the standpoint of the system, has the aspect of duration. It has energetic dimension. It has the aspect of duration. It's not linear, but it's it's energetic. Yeah, I, I yeah, no, and I, I don't disagree. I think my question lied more on the point of, so like you have some of these fringe people that don't have any basis in what they're saying you do you've done research you've read the books you know the science you talk to people i would consider you a legit real researcher i'm saying there's people that are more popular than anybody that have no background or underpinnings and any of this stuff that are speaking crazy things we ask them in your own words what would you say is the top fact that compels us to see the thing your way and if they can express that, then they're legitimate. And if they can't, they aren't. Interesting. Yeah, like I said, I just I I see a lot of vitriol, and I feel like a lot of the fringe isn't isn't embracing the challenge of looking into the mainstream stuff and picking out the blind spots. I feel like they're just watching two YouTube videos on why mainstream's wrong, and then that's they run with it. It's like you you have to know both sides. Quantum physics enfolds the blind spot. Quantum physics, our inability to measure those two values of a particle at the same moment, it represents one of the blind spots. Heisenberg said that causality depends on the assumption that we will always be able to measure this stuff with accuracy. To which I say, Heisenberg, you're full of shit here. That what you just described are the assumptions of science, not of causality. Science insists that we have to be able to measure with accuracy everything, but that's not the way causality works. Causality might be perfectly unimpeded at the level of the quantum domain, and our inability to measure it says nothing about that. 
and de Broglie agrees. Specifically, he flatly says that in one of his books, that our, our inability to measure a thing doesn't mean that it's ultimately unmeasurable. All it means is that science has broken down, that there's a blind spot for science beyond which we can't go. Yeah, I would agree with that. And actually, I mean, all metaphysics is future physics of some sort, right? You know, like, um, right. you know, that's why somebody like you, yeah, you're you're putting yourself out there. You're taking some, you know, what's in front of you and piecing it together and then making, you know, your own hypothesis. But at the same time, there's something there for you to do that. What I, my whole point was there's a lot of people out there making careers off of not having those pieces to connect. You see, and, I have an unfair advantage. You know, in the fifth grade, I realized I was a slow, slow uh, observer. I realized that the reason the teacher's copy of the text was so much more, so much thicker than the copy that the students had was because at the back of the book, they had answers to all the chapter questions in the book. Well, I have an unfair advantage because the ancient languages give me objective answers to all these questions. If I don't understand a subject, I can go to the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary and look it up. I don't have to know it. And then once I once I have what the Egyptian word says, I can test that against what all the other cultures say. And now, you know, I have the Dogen language, which also will affirm it. I have Buddhist references that will also affirm it. I have Hindu references that will also affirm it. I'm now at a point where I, I was amazed. I can now read Rene Guénon, who is the go-to guy for metaphysics. I can read Louis de Broglie critically. What is it? And yeah, the, means- the Rene guy, so just so people know, you've referenced him a few times. That was the French anthropologist that first came in contact with the Dogon, correct? Uh, Rene Guénon was a, a French metaphysicist, and he speaks from the perspective of Hinduism. He is the acknowledged authority on his Hindu um, symbolism and practices. Um, one of my, my uh, sources is a book called The Symbolism of the Stupa by Adrian Snodgrass of the University of West Sydney, Australia. And Rene Guénon is Snodgrass's go-to guy whenever he has to justify a perspective on something. Guénon understands how metaphysics work. Guénon is the guy who says, look, consciousness can't possibly be primordial. It has to be manifested. And then he provides you with three chapters of explanation of why it is that consciousness has to be a manifested form, not a primordial form. Interesting. Um, so how, uh, you know, I know we've talked before, you've given us your background, you went to Vassar, you um, right. are interested in the stuff. Like, how did you really get into it? Like, have you always been interested in these topics? Like, how, when was your first contact with, like, John Anthony West? Or, like, when did you first start becoming part of, like, these circles okay. or... I came out of high school um, regarding myself as the least spiritually connected person I knew. Um, all of my science background, actually the critical part of my science background came by the time I was in the sixth grade. I was fortunate. I grew up in Salem, Oregon, and the their solution to what to do with a child who might be bored in class was to hire a team of teachers who were cross-qualified in multiple disciplines and then farmed them out to the schools. And in the school, they would they would pluck 10 fourth, fifth, and sixth graders out of class for an hour and a half in the middle of every day and teach them anything they wanted to learn. I was taught 
microscopy and chemistry and biology and psychology and geology and marine biology and coding and everything you can possibly think of. We were allowed to, to pick the next unit that we wanted to learn. It was, um, I was taught by a guy who would be what you would get if you crossed um, Michael Rennie from uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still with Charlton Heston. So 90% of what I do in my study, the Dogen studies, rests on what I learned when I was those ages. And those science teachers taught me a few critical points. The first is the concept of entertaining a perspective. Okay, that if you're faced with a scientific question that there might be five answers to, the, I was taught that the job of the scientist is to start with the presumptions of each of the possible answers and then follow along where those presumptions lead you to. It'd be the equivalent of Aristotle. If, you were, if you were trying to show me a shortcut to work that you said would save me 10 minutes and you tried to take me down a dead end street as part of that shortcut, it's not my job to say, oh, no, no, you got to stop there. I know this is a shortcut. It's my job to set aside my objection and follow where you're leading me and see what happens if my if I if I neglect my own objection. That's that's the job of the scientist. Yes, famous Aristotle quote. Uh, it's a mark of an educated mind to be able to hold ideas and not believe them. Right. So modern skepticism, the problem is as soon as they bump up to their against their first objection, they think they're done. But from my perspective, what they're obligated to do is to ask themselves, what would have to change in my outlook to satisfy that objection? And then consider where that leads. And that's what I do with the Dogen stuff, that every time I bump up against something like the ancient Egyptians were representing that there are two modes of time. The Dogen were representing that protons and electrons are important, but neutrons aren't. It took me decades to understand that a neutron is just the lowest resonant form of the protons with the electron, and they counteract each other's uh, electrical sign. And so you end up with a net zero charge object that, that essentially is a proton-electron pair. So my job is when i bump up against one of those things that makes me scratch my head and say how can this possibly be to then examine what would have to change in my preconceptions to allow that and then that takes me in the right direction so you grow up in salem you're in these uh special classes where they teach you whatever you want right. um where do you go from that you go to vassar college and then you said you uh, left I, the least high school in portland which is a okay. uh, was very provincial. Portland was very cosmopolitan relatively in the context of the Pacific Northwest. Um, from Portland, I could do anything I wanted, including go to Vassar College. So then I went to Vassar College, which I'm very pleased that I did and I gained a lot from it. But in terms of my education, what what's really important to my education and all this stuff happened before that. Um, one thing Vassar College did for me was I had equivalent offers from Stanford University and Vassar College. And Stanford wrote me and said, okay, as part of your financial aid package, you're going to work in the dining hall. And I thought, well, okay, I can do that. I've been working in a restaurant during high school days. Vassar wrote me and said, as part of your financial aid package, where would you like to work? And I said, I'd like to program computers. And they said, okay. So that, that was characteristic of the difference in outlook between the two schools. And it's a big piece of why I chose Vassar. So 
I graduated and my English degree was not worth a whole lot to me in the in the business world, but the computer skills were and I ended up um, eventually starting a um, an independent software consulting firm. I wrote um, custom business software for businesses, about 200 different businesses over the course of a couple of decades. So writing a program is essentially working with symbols that one of the key considerations a person has to make when they're writing a, a, a computer program is it makes a difference what I name things. That the guy who follows along behind me five years from now needs to have a toehold into what it was I was trying to do. And if I name the concept of an invoice, a variable that represents an invoice, if I name it A or B or C or X or Y, they have no idea what it is. But if I name it INB pound sign, they immediately understand what it is. So I was being educated in how to formulate symbols as I wrote software. Well, this is a huge part of, of what I'm doing with the Dogen and the Egyptians is trying to get my arms around wh about why did they pick this symbol to rep this, represent this thing? Because there's always a compelling reason. These are intuitive concepts. As a matter of fact, everything you can point to in the ancient mythology that you might imagine to be um, Looks like we might have lost you. No, we're here. Go, you keep going. Everything that you might imagine to be a particularly intuitive uh, metaphor, it turns out is not a metaphor. When you get down to the bottom of how things work, it's objectively the truth about how things happen. I'll give you an example that there's an ancient myth that crosses cultures that we see a little piece of in Genesis. The, the, the myth involves a goddess who sleeps just below the surface of the water. And the first glow of light that precedes the dawn induces her to open her eyes and see the light. This is the let there be light aspect of Genesis. That dynamic is an objectively true scientific dynamic that occurs in biology, that inside every aqueous membrane in any living creature, there's what's called a coherent, a zone of coherent water. It's an exclusion zone that is in effect superconductive. That what happens is that infrared light, which is the equivalent of the first light of dawn that, that precedes the sunlight, breaks down the water molecules that are in the, the aqueous membrane and feeds this zone with those uh, components of the water molecules, all aligned the same way magnetically, which is what the Dogen say, Dogens say causes Superconductivity. Superconductivity is simply a matter of getting all the magnets aligned the same way in the right way. There, magnetism, because it involves two poles, is linear. It, it involves it's one-dimensional, and a one-dimensional magnet can only be aligned two ways, either with north here and south there, or the reverse of that. And so you can flip it, but you can't set it at every every angle in between. It can only sit two ways. You sit it one way and you produce superconductivity. You sit it the other way and you produce superinsulation. And the entire continuum of energy is simply a matter of flipping those magnets one by one so they're sitting opposite of what they had been before. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Interesting. <clears throat> so you go to school, you're interested in program computers. That was the difference in why you chose Vassar over Stanford. Right. And then you get out of school. What then? Did it take a while? Or I'm working as a software designer, I feel that I have no intimate connection at all to this material. Although I posted a picture this week on Facebook of a rug that we picked 40 years ago to put on the floor of our computer room, and the rug, the pattern on the rug, are the two critical shapes that are foundational to this energy cycle. It begins with. Uh, three dots, which are, equate to those three monopoles that manifest. And then it also includes a series of almond-shaped um, figures. That if you know that much, you've got the whole continuum of energy ultimately. Um, a stupa shrine or a Dogen granary shrine is a way of representing three-dimensionally what happens there. That the, the um, how can I say this, the symbolic dynamic that happens with those shrines is you're shifting the equivalent of the particle up to the center of the top of the shrine. And that's what happens energetically when we try to observe any particle in the quantum domain, that we're, we're causing it to either shift or to appear to shift to the resonance point. Yeah, uh, the observer um, effect, right. right? Yeah, but... You know, the, the popular modern perspective is we're creating our reality by doing that. But we aren't. I mean, if you think about it, when you turn on your flat screen TV, you're translating what was, had been a di digital signal into an image. You're converting it. But you're in no way creating the content of the digital signal. You're only interpreting it on your screen. Right. It's like a filter That's or... Here, the Dogans say that the reality we perceive is a correct reflected image of reality as it actually exists in a more fundamental form of waves. Hmm. So the idea isn't that we're creating our reality as we perceive this. The idea is that we're translating it. Interesting. So from there, where when do you start to write your first book and meet John Anthony West and get into that in, whole thing? In the mid 1990s, my wife introduced me to a book called um, Unexplained by Jerome Clark, where every chapter of the book uh, focused on some unsolved mystery in the world that, that was interesting to think about. And one of those chapters was about the Dogen tribe who knew things about science that they should, and about astronomy that they shouldn't know, shouldn't reasonably know because they were primitive Africans. They had no technology. So I thought, wow, wherever this leads is going to be interesting. And I started digging into that. And I started keeping notes for myself about what I was finding out because it got complicated. And I was trying to keep the notes organized. And I eventually realized that I had enough material organized in a form that I could write an article about it if I wanted to. Or I took it the next step and I said, at that point, it was only about $700 to self-publish a book. So I... I self-published my first book called Hidden Meanings, which eventually became The Science of the Dogen. So when that book came out, I was sending out targeted emails to people that I thought might have an interest in the topic. And one of the people, one of those people was John Anthony West, who happened to be on tour in Egypt at the time. He later told me that when he received the email, he really wanted to read the book. He was really interested in reading the book, but 
I had only told him where he could buy it. I could didn't offer to send him one. And he was the sort of guy who had guy authors lined up down the block and around the corner to hand him free books. So he said he'd be damned if he was going to buy the book. So he got back to the U.S. and he realized he lived 45 minutes south of me in the Hudson Valley. Um, so he phoned me one night. My wife saw on the caller ID and said, West, John. And she said, holy shit, here's John Anthony West calling it. So she, she picked it up. And we talked for about 45 minutes until I finally offered to send him a book. So he invited us. I sent him the book and he read it. And then he invited us to come meet him at his then home in Athens, New York. Athens is where they filmed this, the new uh, War of the Worlds. So we drove down there on a, on a very cold, snowy January day to his apartment in Athens. And we got there and found out that he'd arranged for the Magical Egypt tour team to film the first meeting. And that, that meeting became episode eight of Magical Egypt. Here I was walking into having to meet my, this guy who was my idol and explain a complicated set of concepts to him, but it was to be filmed. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. awesome. So and it became if, a go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's an awesome interview with uh, another friend of the show, Soraya, from Where Did the Road Go, where you and uh, yeah. John Anthony are, is that Soraya's house or your house? John, or? John's house. Oh, John's house. That's right. And you're all sitting there. It's 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 a really good video. I recommend yeah, people go yeah, check that out. The, the irony was that Soraya had a hard time finding the right street to turn on. So where did the road <laughs> go? <laughs> I wonder where you got the title. Um so no, that, that's that's fascinating, um, and that's kind of what led me to your work was through all that stuff. So, uh, a couple other people recommending it through the show and stuff too. So, um, but you know, the the interesting thing to me is um, when you look at everything that's going on, it seems like people are slowly. I don't know what I want to say, but like losing their religion. Or maybe things don't have meaning. You can even go back to philosophy and Plato and Socrates, whoever you think was speaking, uh, says it's it's dangerous for man to not have like a higher power to believe in or to answer to or something. So right now you see this idea that none of this means anything and everything's just material and blah, 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 blah. So when I look at your work, I think, you know, maybe we don't need religions, but maybe we just need a different understanding or a new mythology, not that in like a fake way, but just like a new understanding of um, things of that nature. Because I think that there's a lot of people out there that don't really want to even look at the technical aspect of things. So they want a nice story, the, you know. In the Dogen system, the nearest thing they have in their mythology to a modern concept of a god is a mythological character named Ama. We can tell from Ama's name because of the way Dogen uh, phonetics work that he was intended, actually she was originally intended to represent a cosmological concept. Ama is the affectionate nickname that Ganesha, the elephant god in Hinduism, used to refer to his mother by. Um, there are reversals in symbolism that happen midway through this tradition. So it looks as if Ama was originally female, but now is being presented as male. And the, the Dogen priests sort of roll their eyes when they have to represent Amma as male. But the critical function that Amma plays in this process of energy, this cycle of energy is, Amma is responsible for pulling together the two magnets of, or the two poles of the magnet. 
and the Dogen try to ex do not try to explain how that happens, but that's the critical function that ama uh, happens. Now those three monopoles that get created, the electron and the two protons, have the same energetic dynamic among themselves that a water molecule does. So in effect, energy from the bottom up is actually is water, literally water. Um, but this is represented as Ama's second try at creation. His first try began out of a domain that was superconductive, or super insulating, I'm sorry, which has the re reverse of superconductivity. And the super insulating domain, you also have three, when you reduce the energy of the domain, you produce, you manifest three monopoles, but it's two electrical monopoles and one magnetic one. And that doesn't produce the equivalent of water. It produces the equivalent of what's called hydroperoxyl. The Dogans say that Amma's first attempt at creating matter failed because it didn't produce water. And that symbolically literally true that because magnetism is treated as primary to electricity you start with the domain where magnetism is unresisted and the evocation of those monopoles produces hydroperoxyl and that that doesn't create a material domain but as soon as that flips itself which it naturally does to a superconductive setting now every interruption of this electrical cycle ends up creating monopoles that manifest as matter. And it's all, I mean, we can trace it from instanton knots to an atom and beyond. As a matter of fact, this cluster of dynamics of energy plays out on all scales. Um, I'll try to explain that. Okay, if we take a, a minimal dimensional view of those dynamics, we get the clearest sense of what's going on with them. For instance, at the level of the superconductive domain where those monopoles manifest, they manifest and they rotate and they extend outward, you really only have a, one possibility that compares to any of the um, concepts of physics we care about. The extension of the electrical component outward is the source of the extension of space or expansion of space. The pushing of that monopole outward is the equivalent of gravity. Gravity is actually treated as a push, not a pull. Um, the outlook is that in this continuum of energy, what's changing, the factor, the critical factor that's changing is the pace of time. And they're actually, the pace of time is a complicated concept, but the pace of time is progressively slowing down and gravity is treated as, how can I say this? Gravity is to that those progressive differences in the pace of time, what buoyancy is to progressive changes in pressure in water. That a buoyant object in deep sea water will grav migrate to the domain of least pressure. A body of mass in energy tends to gravitate or migrate towards the domain of a slowest time frame. They, they measure on the earth, they can measure a difference in the pace of time in millimeters above the surface of the earth. It gets quicker and quicker and quicker the fat, higher up you go. There's a progressive change in the pace of time. And that's the critical factor as far as ancient Egypt is concerned. Now, time itself, as I said, is, is complicated because the Egyptians represent 
two aspects of time. The first aspect is an oscillation, a broad oscillation, and it relates to what happens between the magnetic poles of the proton. They oscillate in and out at 99% of the speed of light, and it happens so fast that the physicists can't measure it, and so the physicists are presuming that things must be probabilistic because this is happening so quick they can't measure it. The second oscillation is in relation to the magnetism and the electron that's orbiting the proton. That oscillation happens at 2% of the speed of light, and that's the oscillation that, according to de Broglie, has reality to it. And that the position of that electron as it moves along its track relates directly to what's called the, um, the phase of the wave that's associated with it. And so there's reality to that, according to de Broglie and to Einstein, um, objectively there has to be reality to the motion of that particle. It's not just probabilistic all the way, the way that uh, popular physics says that it is. Yeah, that's interesting. So your main hypothesis in your previous books is the idea that there's two realms, the material and the immaterial, and sometimes we reach these golden ages or we're closer within this cycle where some, you know, the non-material is able to reach out through symbols or symbolism or something along those lines. Has that changed now that you're looking at this more primordial well, that, that, stuff? That cycle of energy um, self-differentiates into zones the same way deep sea water self-differentiates into biological zones. And... The self-differentiation happens because of resonance, the same way that the quanta of light self-differentiate because of resonance. And the resonance points are the resting points between the domains. And the outlook, the specific outlook is that at a particular point in the energetic cycle, we have energy scrolling between the non-material domain and the material domain. It's not just energy, it's also energy and mass. And that the metaphor for that is the idea of an hourglass with sand that begins in the top globe that sifts slowly downward into the bottom globe. Well, we know that with water pressure or with pressure of any kind, if we're in a submarine and we want to move out into the, the extreme pressure of the deep sea, we have to equalize the pressure first. We use an airlock to equalize the pressure and then it's perfectly safe for us to move into the other zone. Same thing in space. There's a huge difference in pressure between outer space and the spaceship astronauts are in, but with an airlock, they can equalize the pressure and they can move. Well, the outlook is that time, the function of time is like pressure. And at the midpoint of this cycle, as the sand is sifting from the top globe into the bottom globe, you have equal amounts of sand in both globes. You've equalized the pressure. And at that point, crossover between the domains becomes thinkable. And that's what the Dogen are saying happened, that their originally non-material teachers took that opportunity to move across into the material domain. They were able to take material form and interact one-on-one -on -one, one with the students they were teaching. And that's how this instruction came about. And there's a very complicated perspective in another book of mine called Seeking the Primordial that explains the motive that underlines underlies them having done that. Um, in this cycle of the cycle of energy is like a sleep cycle, only it's not a human sleep cycle. It's actually a, a dolphin sleep cycle. But during our sleep cycle, when we enter REM sleep, 
our brain has is perfectly functional. It's, it's very active. It's doing all sorts of things, but our body has disabled our, our capability of taking action. This is what prevents us from jumping around the room and hopping onto the dresser and, and doing things that we're dreaming about, that our, our physical action has been disabled, has been um, disconnected temporarily. The, the Dogen are saying that at that point in the energetic cycle, the, non, the less material domain, Samkhya, which is the philosophy of the Salt Restaurant, says that the non-material domain has perfect knowledge, but an inability to take action. Whereas at the same point, the material domain has perfect knowledge, I mean, imperfect knowledge, but perfect ability to take action. So that situation for the non-material domain is the equivalent of locked-in syndrome for a human. It's the idea of being perfectly conscious in your brain, but looking like your brain dead from the outside. And unless you have a compatriot who knows you're there, it's like being buried alive. It's horrific. So about a third way into the energetic cycle, the non-material side figures out that's where we're headed. We need a compatriot, and the only compatriot we have potentially is the material side. So we're going to create a structure for society on the material side that will guarantee that they will remember that the non-material side is there at the point where it's most removed from our perception so that this hand-selected group of esoteric initiates will be able to take action on our behalf at a point where we can't take action for ourselves. And essentially that's what my role is. And Samkhya says there are lots of different ways that information is attempted to be communicated to the material side from the non-material side. It comes through vivid dreams, through meaningful synchronicities, through the unusual behavior of animals, through clairvoyance, and through pretty much every uh, paranormal function that we consider to be non-scientific. I have two questions here. So one of them is from uh, somebody listening. Four and a half fingers wants to know, uh, what about electricity being the hybrid of magnetism and dielectricity? Okay. We don't know what happens under the covers. At the bottommost portion of the Dogen system, which agrees with how science describes things, it looks to me as if magnetism and electricity are two dimensional forms of a common energy. Whether there's yet another dimension below that, you know, whether there's a, an, a, another quality of energy that precedes that, that is now being expressed as a single monopole for electricity and, a, and double monopoles for magnetism, I can't say yet for sure. So um, the entire perspective may, makes scientific sense if we simply start with the two energies themselves by themselves. And then the other interactions that happen, the other the geometry is very similar, all very simple. All the other more complicated geometry you get into the complicated geometric forms have nothing to do with the process. All of the more complicated concepts of electricity are probably real, but they aren't essential to the process the Dogen are trying to describe. The Dogen are reducing fractions. They're trying to put this in the simplest terms that we can understand. And obviously there's more to it than just what they're telling us, but um, if you're trying to trace how do we get from a domain of energy to a domain of atoms, they're spelling that out for us. It goes beyond that. If you go to the level of stars, you have the same dynamics of energy. The Dogen are saying 
that our son emerged from Barnard's loop in the company of the two Sirius stars, and that those were the equivalent of a proton-electron pair at the time they emerged. And then our sun, like an electron, moved out away from the, the two Sirius stars, which are now the conceptual proton. Our sun is now the conceptual electron, and we're orbiting those as an electron would orbit a proton because of the influences of Barnard's loop. Interesting. So the other question is my question, which would be, how would the idea of, so you have, you're talking about Samka and, um, you know, Eastern, I guess, philosophy. Uh, what about the idea of, you know, like, so in Vedanta, <clears throat> within Hindu culture, everything's one. There's a non-dualistic um, perception of everything. And actually, they had to create terms uh, for different things to tell people because technically everything's just one thing, but that's hard for people to conceptualize. So they come up with terms to break it down for people. How does that fit into this with their, is that just the material realm or is that both of them together? Like what's going on here? There are six different expressions of the, of the philosophy in India that are foundational to all the, all the classic traditions. And Samkhya is one of those six but they relate to each other and they and there's overlap between what they discuss and what they what they don't discuss um um so renee guinan is probably the person who does the best job of pulling all of the different perspectives together but they they are all integrated and they all make sense together and um, he'll explain one answer answer in terms of writing. Um, I mean, there, there are um, ancient writings. When I say ancient, I mean late, late um, centuries BC or early centuries AD that are the foundation of those Indian concepts. This tradition, the Samkhya tradition, goes all the way back to 9000 BC at Gobekli Tepe. Virtually every symbolic element we see at Gobekli Tepe is an alternate expression of a Samkhya um, concept. Um, I was saying there's self-confirmation of meaning for original um, elements of this tradition. At Gobekli Tepe, we have maybe a half a dozen to a dozen different expressions of the idea of two energies coming together, which is what Samkhya restaurant. Samkhya, from my point of view, is a sometimes self-contradicting um, overview of how the energies work. They explain to us in very generalized terms what the relationship is between Purusha and Prakriti. <clears throat> if you go to the Dogen language, the Dogen language preserves the original phonetics of this system. So we know that Purushi, uh, the, the term Purushi literally means um, impurities defined. These are potentials. This is the possible impurities of energy that, that can be manifested. Prakriti literally means that it refers to the set of manifestations that actually occur. And Samkhya is literally apprehension and embrace, uh, apprehension and embrace of uh, light. So if you know what the, uh, how the syllables work, you, it's easy enough to sort things, these things out. Samkhya, um, rests on all of the original phonetics, but they've lost the trace of most of the original meanings. Um, as an example, the title Ganapati for, for the Hindu god Ganesha 
if you translate it in terms of Sanskrit, they interpret it to mean Lord of the Ganas, which is very unspecific. In the Dogen language, Gana means world, and Pa is the concept of turning in a circle in an expanding space. It's the definition of a spiral. So Ganapati literally means world spiral, and that's the symbolism that applies to Ganesha. Um, we have other examples of a similar thing. Uh, if you go to Malta, um, the in the early 1900s, the original researchers who discovered the Halsapliene um, hypogeum, it's where they discovered the, the statue of the sleeping goddess. It's a set of caves under that are buried in a hill um, on Malta. And the entry into those caves was through a village at the top of the hill. Well, one of these researchers was very confused because he said, if you translate Halsafliene in terms of Maltese language, what it means is low-lying village. Why in the world would anybody name this site for a low-lying village when you enter it through the top? If you go to the Faroese language in Northern Scotland, which also preserves many of the original phonetics of the language, Halsafliene literally means hall or cave of the sleeping one. Anytime you have a word in ancient Greece or in the Aegean area or actually in any of these cultures where the researchers are telling you this is uncertain etymology, the indication to me is they're trying to translate it against the wrong language, that you don't translate those Greek words in terms of ancient Greece, Greek, you translate them in terms of Faroese. And if you do that, it plays right out what the term means. Uh, Hades, which is a Greek term, rests on a uh, Faroese language word, Hade, that means the lowest part of something. Yeah, I, th I think that that, to me, is the most interesting uh, part of your work is the etymology of all this and the connections and things like that. Because, like, you know, we can all you know talk about megaliths and how building you know how they built this or built that or what type of techniques but i think at the at the core of it were human beings that are conscious and i think language has a lot to do with consciousness so if you're trying to figure out like our origins i would look more to the mind and language and things like that than i would for physical structures, if that makes sense. Now, Confucius at 500 BC loudly complained that he could no longer count on the Chinese language to self-define every word. In other words, prior to 500 BC, ancient Chinese words also did that. Well, I mean, there is a, I mean, look, that's why Socrates didn't write anything down either. Um, right. So, well, Socrates saw written language as a degradation. Right, okay. right. The way to understand that is think of how many centuries critical skills were passed down through apprenticeship where one student worked with one master carver or one ma master potter or whatever, and they passed those skills along successfully uh, decade after decade, century after century, from the master to the student, and everything was fine. Socrates saw written language as a degradation of that. He said written language is a way for a person to represent that they're an expert in a subject they aren't really expert in. Well, yeah, because that was also like the rise of sophistry and this idea that there were people out there teaching these people skills of debate and rhetoric and things for them to win things. Uh, but it was more of a rhetoric because they were just debating to debate to win and not actually looking for truth. Right. Um, 
so um, the Dogen have have steadfastly refused to adopt a written language for all of those same reasons. From their point of view, it's a far more coherent system to pass it down orally than it is to pass it down in writing. Also, a written text, if you're talking about information that you're trying to keep secret, a written text is a security breach waiting to happen. Now, there are ways they hedge that. For example, the written texts originally were just to, to codify what had originally been spoken texts. So they discovered that if they eliminated the vowel sounds, then anybody who was familiar with the spoken text could recite it perfectly fine from the written text, but anybody who wasn't familiar with the spoken text couldn't. So it's coding. And so all of the earliest hieroglyphic languages omit the vowel sounds. Hebrew omits them, the Egyptian hieroglyphic language omits them. Because by doing that, okay, the other thing they did was all of these cosmological words um, associate with a cluster of meanings that are discrete meanings, uh, such that if you know one of the meanings, you can't reasonably guess the other meanings that are associated. And those meanings hold true across languages and across cultures. So a person like me, can positively correlate a word between the Dogen language and Sanskrit, which are very different, because the concepts associate with the same cluster of meanings. It's got to be the same system. Um, and those, what they did with some of the ancient Egyptian texts is, it looks as if they substitute, okay, those play out as, as homonyms in the English language if you put them into a written text. It's like there, there, and there. The gods are on the line. They want a word with you. They should stop divulging yeah. the secrets. No, sorry, sorry, that's our phone again. No, 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 you're good. You're good. Well, so what they looks like the scribes did in ancient Egypt is when they were translating a spoken text, they would substitute the homonym for the actual word. So if you're talking about the concept of seeing, S-E-E, they might use the word for ocean or sea. And so now the modern translators come along and they do their faithful translation of the text, and it sounds like gobbledygook. It sounds like nonsense. They have to resort to poetry to translate it because these words don't mean anything in literal context with each other. It's their sounds that are important, but nobody knows what the original sounds actually were. You mentioned uh, Gobekli Tepe a little bit ago. Have you been paying attention to any of these finds at Karahan Tepe? Most, uh, I think just a few days ago, they just unveiled that one uh, new statue or t-pillar where it was it's like a male figure holding his own erection um with like yes. a really big head um and yeah. then there's some other there's like a pig and like a couple other things um actually the dogan uh preserve a very secret highly secretive altar a large stone altar that there are animal carvings on it that are indistinct, indistinguishable stylistically from the gobekli tepe carvings okay i don't uh, know if you remember this but we did a whole episode on this where we had uh comparative pictures that i pulled up too from right, the dogon yeah. altar uh comparing it to the gobekli tepe symbolism and there was a lot of crossover there the image of that altar is no longer findable online as a matter of fact i can't even find the photographer who's credited with taking the picture i can probably send. i think i might have it in my adobe files i can see oh, if i could get getty images won't admit that it was theirs originally if I ha if if I have it, I'll send it to you. But anybody that's interested, go back and watch the preview. I forget. I'll have to go back and find the episode. But the whole playlist of episodes we've done with Laird is below. But that right. image is definitely in one of those episodes. Yeah. So 
Gobekli Tepe is definitely connected to this. Now, at Gobekli Tepe, one of the carved images from a distance looks like a sort of a, um, a not very well carved letter H. But when you get up close to it and you, and you focus in on it, you realize what it is is a picture of two elephants contacting each other. Those two elephants are a highly secretive form of Ganesha in India, China, and Japan called the Kanjiten. They're symbolic of non-material and material energies coming together, which is the very concept of a sanctuary. This is the concept that's repeated again and again and again at the Gobekli Tepe. Every structure there, including the, the enclosures that the pillars are in, are symbolic of the two energies coming together. Yeah, most people don't know that those are elephants because it's kind of faded away a bit. So people are like, no, it's an H. It's an H. I'm like, I've no. zero, I've I've zoomed in on these as clear as you can get on these things. That was an elephant. Um, yeah, and there were actually, an ele, ele, uh, there's a breed of elephant that was indigenous to Southeast Turkey until the late centuries BC. So it's not as if they were carving something they weren't familiar with. We're doing, we're trying to bring back the mastodon too. Who knows? Now, I'll, I'll try to explain why the elephants are important. I was talking about the two oscillations of energy that underlie this system. Okay. The best way to illustrate this is at 3200 BC at Gobekli Tepe, the geography of, I'm sorry, at, or on Orkney Island in Scotland, the geography of Orkney Island is such that the rising sun and the setting sun, which are symbolic of the linear aspect of these energies, the setting sun sets behind two elephant-shaped mountains that have a gap between them. They're the shape of an aket in, in Egypt. And a person who watched every day at the sunset would notice the sun's position behind those mountains moving back and forth from solstice from solstice to equinox to solstice and at the solstice, at the equinox the sun sets directly between the two mountains from that period on hinduism adopted as an official principle that important sites were situated in view of two elephant shaped mountains um, the idea was to provide themselves with a natural agricultural calendar they would know when to plant and when to harvest because of those and it gave them visibility on these two oscillations of energy on a human scale. So you no, no longer had to imagine it. You could see it every day in your life. Prior to that time, the same concept was conveyed symbolically using a single mountain that looked like an elephant. You can see that at Elephantine. To this day, um, from, the, from where the temple is on Elephantine Island, you're in view of a mountain that the, the sun sets behind in that same way. And modern residents of Elephantine Island have, have texted, we know that summer's coming because of where the sun is behind the mountain. The same thing happened on Malta. You have at Hagar Quim on Malta, you have a stone, a megalithic window that frames an island out in the scene that is shaped like an elephant and the sun sets behind that island and they're using it the same way. Yeah, shout out, we're talking about Malta, shout out to Laura. Uh, megalith hunter on youtube uh if you're not familiar with her work please check it out she's been on the show a bunch she's really interesting actually i'd like to connect you two i think that uh, oh, yeah but fun. she she's uh she's like a mix too she likes some of the more out there things she lives on malta by the way so she has access she goes around all the sites and takes pictures and, and does all the things that, that's great there's all sorts of things connected to malta as a matter of fact 
every founding element on Orkney Island at 3600 BC existed in similar form on Malta in the, uh, the immediately preceding era. It's as if a group of um, initiates who were educated on Malta um, moved northward and established the, the farming community on Orkney. Yeah, we, we've talked about that on this. We've talked about like, uh, you know, Sardinia and like the surrounding um, Sardinia and uh, Sicily um, and just there's these periods of like, you know, they don't know what happened throughout the history. Like uh, they call it like not the dark. I forget what she calls it, but like they don't know what happened during a certain amount of time on the island um, as well as um, they don't know who the original people were. And there's obviously there's evidence of possible uh, ritual and entheogen use and things like that. So. Well, during that period, there was deliberate, what looks like, what, what researchers in the Aegean interpret as deliberate colonization of the major islands for agriculture. And we, we can demonstrate that's true. At Hagar Quim, the name Hagar Quim in the Maltese language means standing stones. If you go to Orkney, an ancient name for Orkney was Orknajar. In the Faroese language, Orca means stone and Kajarni means to stand or endure. So the standing stones of Stennis were sitting on a place that was was named honorifically or seemingly named honorifically for um, for Malta. When you go to um, Abydos in Egypt, you have any number of elements that are directly honorific of things that are found on Orkney at 3200 BC. You have burial chambers that are shaped like the Orkney houses, and you have a cemetery positioned in relation to two mountains with a gap called Pega the Gap, um, that's uh, just like the Orkney Mountains. Um, Seti says that the original name of Abydos was Abdu, which literally meant the desired mountain. I don't know if we lost. Have we lost each other here? Yeah, no, sorry. I'm I'm here. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on with this this camera stuff here. I don't know what happened here. Um, I don't know. We're good. We keep going. We're we're here. No, so that's really the upshot of 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 the the two books, the Ama and the Spark of the Universe, and um, the Waters of Life is tying together all those root energetics. And now, because it's clear that those connect to these beat frequencies that uh, create the photons, there's a whole other aspect to it that, that is to be written about, and that's what I'm focusing on for the book. called In Hinduism, those beat frequencies are the third eye, that the eye of Ra and the eye, okay, there are, in this continuum of energy at the, at the level of universes, there it self-differentiates into zones that coincide with levels of consciousness in Hinduism. The earliest level of consciousness is a primordial consciousness. This is not deified. It's the few indications we get of it are as benign a personality as you can imagine. Um, that consciousness sends out what are called messengers to communicate with the other domains. These are called Aku orbs. and the, the Dogen title for those orbs literally means to send, to say hello. This is a very friendly consciousness. There's a, uh, that consciousness in proper 
um, cosmological phonetics is called reina, which literally means energy of the non-material feminine. There's a second level of consciousness at the level of, of uh, the non-material and material universes themselves uh, that um, relates to icons of the two universes. Sirius becomes an icon of non-materiality and the phonetic is C, S-I, and the sun becomes an icon of the material domain, the, the phonetic is Ra, so the proper name for that consciousness is Sira or Sira, S-I-R-A or S-I-R-A-H. So we have perspective on at least a couple of these non-human levels of consciousness. Uh, esoteric Buddhism says the final state of enlightenment is grasping that it's all the same consciousness, that our consciousness is a subset of that same consciousness. And in Hinduism, because, as I said, the process is like yeast causing dough bread to rise. You can't properly say that one precedes the other. Hinduism tries to say that all material forms exist inside consciousness, but in fact, the same energy that's causing material forms is also causing consciousness. So these are codependent functions, not, not sequential ones. You can't say that materiality exists inside consciousness. It happens at the same time as consciousness. Interesting. We've got a, uh, sorry, I don't know what's going on with the cameras. I think I hit a button and it added an extra window and I don't know. Now it's not deleting, but just deal with it. We're here. We're live. The audio is still good. Um, Somebody wants to know, super curious, has Laird heard of uh, any Randall Carlson's takes on the Vajra um, and the creation and use of plasmoids? He's doing a thing now with this guy, I think his name's Malcolm Bendel, um, where they're trying to figure out ancient symbolism and how it could apply to technology specifically like plasma and stuff like that. Have you seen any of his stuff on that? I'm friends with Randall Carlson. I've done interviews with him before. Um, we've attended the same conferences, spoken on the same venues, had dinner together. Um, so I have a lot of respect for Randall Carlson. The perspective, the Dogen perspective is you have a single cluster of energy that's producing things at all on all scales. So absolutely, you're going to see similar forms created by those same dynamics of energy. And so you end up with... Um, situations where the pineal gland looks like other structures that are created. This is not, this is, from the Dogen perspective, this is a function of the, of the way the energies work, not a function of anything else. So I, I believe quite possibly that the plasma forms take the same shapes. I think it's possible that ancient people saw them, but there's another factor going on, which is it looks like during certain periods of the energetic cycle, people are better able to connect to non-material knowledge than, than we are now. We're at the end of a cycle right now, which is as far distant from it as we can get. The indication is that when we're in closer proximity to non-materiality, that we have more direct insight into this stuff. So they might have gotten it from plasma, or they might have gotten it from non-material information. I mean, communicated knowledge. Yeah, I um, we'll wait and see. I watched he had, he did a recent episode on uh, some other dude's podcast, uh, Concrete or whatever it's called now, uh, and I watched part of it. And what it looks to me is, regardless of it's like produces 
zero point energy or some brand new type of energy or whatever regardless of that it seemed like whatever he was showing was a more efficient way and probably a more um, eco-friendly way of producing more energy or sustaining energy that kind of a thing right and i mean tesla testified that there are ways of doing that and we have to believe he was right yeah i uh i don't know i uh i want to believe all this stuff you know i love all this stuff but at the same time it's like i uh you know we got to follow what happens here and uh you know I, I i people want oh what do you think about this what do you think about that i mean i have my own thoughts on things i just for me it's like you know there's this i keep going back to this quote because i use it all the time now by pericles which it says time is the wisest counselor which is true because wow. everything gets sorted out through time usually usually you know right. things can go awry and maybe there's things that pop up and happen but yeah for the most part we're all um we're all subject to getting our truth through time right or some variation of it yeah i agree and there's value in realizing that we might not understand a thing now but we will eventually my entire process you know as i research and learn things I have one pile of things that make immediate sense to me and another pile that I want to research and then a whole other much larger pile of things that I can't have an opinion about right now, but I'm hoping that down the line I'll have enough overview to figure out what they are. And then periodically the right piece falls into place and a whole book's worth of that material pulls together and I write a book. So there's value over time in, in having patience and realizing that not understanding it right now doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we start to wrap it up, you have, you said you were kind of working on a new one called um, the third eye, I believe. Um, right. That's how Hinduism characterizes this beat frequency, which takes exactly the shape of the Egyptian unbrowed eye. This is not the left or the right eye, it's a central eye. And Hinduism flatly understands it. Rene Guénon understands it, its symbolism to be that of the third eye. And do you have like a, a date for when that might come out or? You no, know? I've, I've, I'm only a few chapters into writing it right now and typically it takes um, a year or a year and a half to write and publish a book. Okay. So okay. Hopefully next year sometime. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, well, let's start to wrap it up here. Uh, this was a fantastic episode. Like I said, we've done many with uh, Laird, like six or seven. So if you're interested, you want more of, you know, his takes on all this stuff and maybe more in-depth stuff on maybe even some of the megalithic structures and other, you know, uh, you know, cultures and things like that, go check out our other episodes. I have a playlist down below. Um, and yeah, it's always a pleasure having you on. I know we haven't, you know, we had some things come up and I was doing the documentary stuff and it just seemed like we weren't uh, lining up. But uh, yeah, love to have you back on again soon and let us know when your new book comes out. We'll have you back on. Uh, publicize my email address. I'm happy to have people uh, ask me questions by email. Yeah, and uh, you are also on Facebook, correct? So if people want to connect with you, they can... They can friend me on Facebook. I joke they shouldn't confuse me with all the other Laird Scranton. Um, no, yeah, but absolutely. So, yeah, you're welcome back on, obviously, anytime. We'll have you back on when your new one comes out. 
and we'll keep an eye on all this stuff. Like I said, I like your take. You're, you, you're a dedicated researcher. You're not just one of these people um, out here grifting or trying to make a dollar or two. You actually care about this stuff. You're passionate. It comes through your research. So um, if anybody's interested in this stuff, please go check out Laird's work. Um, you know, again, there's got stuff on Scarabray and early Scottish sites. He's got stuff on the Maori. He's got stuff on Gobekli Tepe. So go check out all that stuff. Um, and yeah, we do have, uh, a bunch of exclusive episodes with him as well. You can go check them out on our Patreon. Um, for $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content, but for $7 a month, you get a, uh, director's cut version of our documentary as within so without from ufos to dmt as well as all that exclusive content um and yeah just you know keep supporting originality and original art and artists and anybody that you see creative out there doing something different try and promote that that's what i've been trying to do um and uh, i'm just trying to think what else yeah so i have the link to all of laird's books down below um you can find them all on there. And uh, yeah, the best way to support Mindscape is to click the link tree link down below. Um, you know, if you're watching us live right now on YouTube, please go check out our audio platform stuff. Leave us a nice review on Spotify and Apple. We do have video podcasts on Spotify. And uh, if you're listening on an audio platform, please check out our YouTube channel and uh, give us a like and subscribe. Um, we do have a merch store, cool designs in there. Go check it out. And I'm trying to think, yeah, just again, uh, check out our documentary as within, so without from UFOs to DMT. It's kind of a different look on the whole phenomena, um, through the lens of the mind and consciousness, as opposed to physical craft and the normal, you know, military, um, narratives and stuff like that. So, uh, again, Laird, thank you so much for your time and, uh, you know, what you do and everything. And I look forward to your future, uh, books and research and, Thanks. uh, yeah. And, uh, again, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And, uh, check out our other episodes we did recently. So yesterday I did one, um, you know, I had Matthew Roberts on who was stationed on the USS Roosevelt for the famous gimbal footage that's out there now. Uh, he's also in the new Spielberg uh, Encounter series on uh, Netflix, so go check that out. And then we had Matthew pa Palomari on recently, super, super interesting guy, talked about uh, ayahuasca and ceremonies in South America and stuff like that and his relationship to that community. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Adam Butler, excellent uh, um, episode. And, uh, oh, we had Michael Masters on discussing the whole uh, alien mummy and Homo Naledi stuff. So all fantastic episodes we've done recently, and, and we're going to have a lot more to come. But, uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Laird. And uh, I'm going to play the intro to our documentary as we get out of here. And uh, we love everybody. Stay safe out there. We'll catch you next time. Peace. I don't have to believe something's here. There's no question about that. They are not just from this planet, but based on the characteristics they're most often described having, that they're simply us from the future. It was um, the biggest aircraft I've ever seen in my entire life. It was semi-translucent, it seemed. And we see four orange orbs flying one after another, basically in formation. Um, I think in a way, you know, you could call a UFO 
a flying dream. Out of the cornfield, that seven-foot-tall, gray, menacing, communion-looking alien, or whatever you want to call it. Because it can be a multitude of things, of deities, of godlike creatures, of aliens. The reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more complex. As within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.